All right, I think I am ready here. So we're going to go ahead and we are going to take a look today. We're going to springboard off of the text, Revelation 3, verse 20, as we continue our look here at the Song of the Ages. So uh, I was very impressed. I appreciated that children's story right there at the door because it seemed like that's just exactly what we're going to talk about here. So I don't know if that was by design or not, at least God's design. But uh, yeah, we're going to look at at the door here. So let's go ahead. We're going to review the message that God gives to his church, his people of Laodicea. It begins in Revelation 3, verses, uh, verse 14. And what it says here is that unto the angel, the messenger, of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And just right there, I thought it might be good to examine those words, uh, the true witness right there. This is obviously talking about Jesus. You'll notice that the Amen, it's capital A, right? The fact that he's called the true witness as opposed to just saying, this is Jesus, tells us something right there. This is uh, legal, this is courtroom language. Jesus has a testimony to give, and he can only give a truthful testimony. So what he tells the angel of this church, so that it can go to the entirety of the church, is absolutely true. And so we need to, to mark what he says. And then it goes on here in verses 15 and 16. And he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Now, just to make sure that we understand this properly, you understand, you may have heard this before, you know, Laodicea was known for having a water that would go into it. This is, this is water imagery with the cold and the hot and the lukewarm here. And it might seem a little puzzling right there. Um, lukewarm water, I think we would all agree, is not necessarily great. It's not refreshing, right? But the cold or the hot, it might seem a little bit strange right here. Why does he say that he wishes we were cold or hot? Sometimes we kind of go straight to a spiritual understanding and saying, well, you know, if we were cold, not open to the gospel, or if we were hot, that somehow that'd be good. But let's not miss the water imagery right here. Does the Bible say anything good about cold water? And so he would say that I would, that you were cold. Is cold water good? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Somehow we, we think cold is bad here, but notice what the Bible says. Proverbs 25, verse 25 says, As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. The ultimate good news I can think of from a very far country is the gospel. It's cold waters, right? If you look in the New Testament, what does Jesus himself say about cold water? Well, you may remember from Matthew 10, 42, he says, If you give drink unto one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, it goes on to say you won't lose your reward. Okay. So evidently, cold water in the Bible, as I read it, is a good thing. And so you can see why he'd say, I wish that you were cold or hot. You know, if you could somehow be refreshing. Now, cold or hot, apparently, you could either be uh, cold, you might not be on fire for the gospel, but you could be made to, uh, to be refreshing to somebody else if you accept it. You could be hot, you know. You might even be opposed to, the Bible, to, to everything the Scripture says, but if you are willing to be transformed, 
If you are zealous to repent, as he says in a few verses, this is a good thing. But when you're lukewarm and you're comfortable, God says, I can't do a thing with you because you're not willing to budge. You're just comfortable right there in the cesspool. Now, also, please notice this. When it says, I will spew you out of my mouth, that's, I mean, I think we know what that means. It might be easy to misunderstood that. He's not saying that, well, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to do it. It's just over. I've had it with you. That's not what he's saying. It would, might be better to nuance it more like the Greek says, because you're lukewarm and you're not cold or hot, I am on the verge of, I'm just about to spit you out. In other words, there is still a glimmer of hope. It's just that your case is pretty sad. And so you don't want to play games. Now, as you go on here in verse 17, Jesus continues by saying, Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I mean, he couldn't make it any more evident that this church is in a sad way right here. But because you do think you're rich and increased with goods, notice what he says here. He doesn't say, because of that, I'm going to just blot you off the face of the earth. He says, no, this is the seventh of the seven churches. This is the apple of my eye. You just need a lot of mm, polishing up, let's say. And so rather than blotting them out, he says, let's fix the problem. And here's my solution. He says, I counsel you to buy of me three things. The first, he says, is gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. Because it says, you think you're rich, but you're poor. So we're going to fix that issue. And then he says, I also counsel you to buy of me white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. Because he said, you don't know that you're naked. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. You remember that in the Garden of Eden, right? When sin first entered, what did they do? They realized they were naked. They were ashamed. They wanted to cover it. He says, no, no, you need something else. You need white raiment. And then he says, and anoint your eyes with, what's that next word? Isav, that's right. Isav, that thou mayest see. You can see your own condition. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. By the way, that's, that's right. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. What does the Bible say? That a father demonstrates love for his son, among other things, by what? By chastening him, right? No chastening seems um, pleasant for the, for the current season. It does seem grievous, but it is, in fact, a sign of love. If you never chasten your child, doesn't mean you have to do it all the time, but if you never chasten them, that's not love. That's just license, and they just go off into the world. So he says, be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then we get the verse, oh, no, sorry, getting ahead of myself. We want to make sure that we understand what this gold, white raiment, and ISAB is. If he counsels us to buy it because this is the solution to our big problem, kind of nice to know what he's talking about. So here's a few statements. I figure we just go right to inspiration. That way we won't be getting my opinion. We'll just know what God himself says. Uh, in this book, um, 11 manuscript releases right there, there's a, there's a chapter in there. It's about 20 pages and it begins on, is it 280, 280 roughly? And if you want to learn more about this message, you might want to read this afternoon. Volume 11 manuscript release is about 280 to 297 or so. But anyways, here's just an excerpt. It says, while you have professed to believe, you have in spirit rejected the message. The special work he is doing at this time to arouse a lukewarm, slumbering church 
Those who accept the message given will heed the counsel of the true witness that speaks to Laodicea, uh, to the Laodiceans, and will buy the gold, notice, which is what? Okay, faith and love. Uh, The Bible says in Galatians 5, it also says a similar thought, faith which worketh by love, right? The white raiment, which is, you might have guessed this, white, purity, it's the righteousness of Christ, and the eye salve, which is what? Aha, so that's the kind of sight we need. We need to see with the eye of faith. We need to discern, right? I'm going to put another one up here because it adds just a little bit of uh, coloring. This is entirely true, but sometimes we don't want to just take one statement. You kind of gather a few, you get a fuller picture. So please notice right over here, delightful article entitled Connection with Christ from Review and Herald, November 23, 1897. Notice here it says that the eye... The spiritual eye is the sensitive conscience, the inner light of the mind. Upon its correct view of things, the spiritual healthfulness of the whole soul and being depends. The ISAV, comma, the word of God, makes the conscience smart under its application, for it convicts of sin. Now, the reason I put that up there is, you'll notice, this one here, volume 11, manuscript releases, identified the ISAV as spiritual discernment, right? This one, not that it disagrees, but notice it says the ISAV is the Word of God. There's no disagreement there, right? The Word of God is all truth. It shows us our condition, and then the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with that to bring the needed conviction, right? Okay. And then also when it says it makes the conscience smart, you understand smart doesn't mean intelligent here. You know, if I... I don't know, if I walk out the door there and I'm a bit clumsy and I smash my my thumb, I would say it smarts because it's like, that's the kind of smarting it's talking about here. Uh, One other little detail right here. This is found in Review and Herald, April 1st, 1890. I like the fact that it's called Repentance, the Gift of God. That was part of the Laodicean message. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. It says the white raiment, yes, it's the righteousness of Christ, but it goes on, it says it's also the wedding garment, which Christ alone can give. The seventh and final church of the seven churches in Revelation 3 is the church with the judgment message. It's the one that's getting ready for the the final wedding. And so this white raiment is the wedding garment. Think of it as the, I mean, most brides will wear a white dress to their wedding, right? So it is. But spiritually, this wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ. Now, we return to the message to Laodicea. Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Behold, I, Jesus, the true witness, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Now, um, I've highlighted the words there, hear my voice, that's important. But just one observation right here. Notice he's standing at the door. As Dr. Carlos pointed out, the door of our heart, right? It's not a physical door. He's knocking, seeking admission. He wants entrance to our heart right there. But he says that, among other things, when he comes into us, he's going to do what? He is going to sup with him, or sup with us, and he with me. And I like that. That sounds like old English in some 
modern versions will say something more like, I will eat with him, I will dine with him. I like the fact that it says sup, though, because it, you can see that it's the root of the word supper, right? It's the exact same word at the other end of the book when it talks about the marriage of the lamb has come. It's talking about the wedding supper, the marriage supper of the lamb. It's this exact same word. Jesus is saying, if you will hear my voice, if you will buy those, oops, that's four, three, three items that I prescribed, it's going to result in that we are going to sup together. Not just some lovey-dovey, kind of just a nice picnic. No, we will have the marriage supper together. I mean, this is exciting good news. Supposed to be. Now, anyways, it says here that the, it has to, it's the one who overcomes, though. So we're going to look at that overcoming. But he says, if any man hears my voice, well, what can we notice here? The last verse of the message to the seventh church says, he that has an an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Apparently, Jesus' voice is manifest in listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. Okay? All the messages to the churches say, hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. But here it's just interesting. It's Jesus' own voice. Now, let's just summarize the little points that we've seen here so that we have something to to go on here. The message to Laodicea comes from the faithful and true witness. There's Jesus. He says, I'm going to faithfully report that you have a problem. You know, a, a faithful physician is going to identify the problem. He's not going to say, well... Boy, that's in a bad way. You know what? I just I won't tell them. I don't want to discourage them, and maybe they'll get uh, sad and maybe get more sick. The faithful physician would say, well, they need to know. I'll break it in the right way, but I'm going to break the news to them that, look, you've got a problem, so we can deal with it. Confrontation is a, is a good thing. Avoidance is not. He says that you are lukewarm and that I'm on the verge. Remember, it's not that he's going to spit them out, but he's on the verge of doing it if they don't repent. He lets them know their impoverished condition, our impoverished condition. And he says we need to buy that gold, which is faith and love. We need to buy that white raiment, the wedding garment, which is the righteousness of Christ. And we need the eye salve, which is identified as both the word of God and the needed spiritual discernment that the Holy Spirit provides. We need to accept his rebuke, right? It's one thing to have the diagnosis, But if you say that's very good and you just put the paperwork in your pocket and do nothing with it, there is no cure provided. So we need to be zealous to repent. Jesus is knocking at the door and he says, if you hear my voice and you open the door and you let me come in. And then he says, the the spirit, hear what the spirit says to the churches. So hopefully this is all familiar ground, but it's just good to review the fundamentals. Um, I'm, I'm a big Big fan of revisiting that. Sometimes we can get advanced and we can start looking at all the details, but if you forget fundamentals, sometimes we can't, you know, put all the pieces together. So now, with that, let's go back to verse 20, which was our text this morning. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So the big question is this. How does the Laodicean message apply to me? It's one thing to know the message, but if it doesn't do anything for us, or if we don't know how to apply it, or we don't see that it's worth applying, it's meaningless, right? True education. Things have to be practical. 
So how does this apply to me? Apparently it's, a, apparently it's important, but maybe we can be a little more specific. What I want to draw your attention to are these three words. The knocking, that's what Jesus is doing, right? The voice, he through the Spirit is speaking to us. And then our part is to open the door, right? That's going to be helpful right there. Um, a few people have asked me, you know, how do you study the Bible? How do you figure out what a text means? So I thought, I'm just going to use this as a simple example right here. Do, do any of you here, just, just by show of hands, who here routinely uses some kind of software, electronic tool, or whatever when you're in your Bible study? Anybody here? Okay. Some, but not everybody. Okay, that's fine. If you were interested, and I would say in augmenting your Bible study, you, you might find this helpful. This is very brief, but here's how I do it. What I do, if I look at that text and I say I don't fully understand it, I'd like to see what else the Bible has to say about it. You could go to a paper concordance, and you could look up each word. It turns out if you do that here, you're going to have a little bit of a problem, especially with the words uh, voice and open. You're going to come up with about 250 to 300 words apiece. Now, for some word studies, that's okay. I mean, maybe if it's 10 words, I might comb through all the verses. As soon as I see there's 300, I say there's probably a better way. I mean... We're to be careful, students of the Word, but I don't think that for every verse of Scripture we need to look up 300 other verses. That's, we'd never get anywhere. And so here's what I do. What I do is I say, okay, I want to use a concordance, but let me let the computer do some of the dirty work. I mean, why make life harder than it is? So here's one thing that I chose this uh, website here because I'm familiar with it, and it's free. You don't have to download anything. You don't have to pay anybody anything. It's just there. So uh, it's called blueletterbible.org. And if you pull it up, uh, which if you wanted to, I guess you could pull it up right now. But if you do pull it up, the web page looks like this, at least on a computer. It may be somewhat different on your phone. But nevertheless, it's a simple-to-use piece of software. And what I would like to direct your attention to, notice the page. It's, it's, it's easy to use, but it's a little bit busy. So you'll notice I circled in red there. That's the key part of the screen. Up there, it says, if you want to search the Bible for whatever it is you want to search, that's where you go. So for our purposes, remember, the words we're interested in are, are knocking, voice, and open. Here's what you do. You tell it, computer, please find those words. You'll notice I put them in there for you. Uh, I put knock, and then I put a little star after it. That way I can get knock, knocked, knocking, I don't know, knocketh, what, you know, just anything in that family. And then I did the same thing with open. So I can get openeth, opened, opening, if there's any other versions of it. Uh, voice, I just figure I just leave it as voice. So when I do that, you'll notice that in that red circle there, there is a, a green box with a magnifying glass. If you click that, the computer will do the searching for you. It can comb through hundreds of verses and, you know, find any verses that contain all those words. A lot faster than you trying to do 300 verses for the first word, another 300 for the second word. How many verses in the Bible do you suppose, just take a wild guess, or maybe you've looked it up here, how many verses do you suppose contain all three words? Five? Okay, good. Somebody made a guess. All right. That's actually very close. One? Well, if it's only one, that'd be a bad example because then there's no other verses to look at. But... So it's more than one. 
is less than five. It turns out this is really nice for an example because guess what? There are two. So if I want to understand Revelation 3.20, I go look at the other verse. And thankfully, there's only other one. So it makes it kind of simple. Usually, you'll get more verses and you got to take your time and sift through it. But nevertheless, this is nice. Now, you'll notice, yes, I heard it there. The other verse just happens to be in the Song of Solomon. Okay, so anyways, that's just how you can conduct a search if you would like to make that part of your um, spiritual arsenal. But now, let's put them there together on the screen. Revelation 3.20, the verse that we're trying to understand better, says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. I will sup with him and he with me. The verse that it is drawing on here is Song of Solomon 5, verse 2. It says, It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove. By the way, don't think there's anything strange here with my sister. You look at that in the Bible, you'll find it's a term of endearment. That's all it means. It doesn't mean, you know, anything dirty. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. For those of you that are careful Bible students, you might want to know, it's the same in English. Are they the same maybe in the original language? Mm -hmm. If you compare the Greek of the New Testament and the Greek of the Old, it's identical. So these are explanatory. And you might think, okay, so does Song of Solomon 5.2 help me understand Revelation 3.20? Well, it's going to, yes. Now, they match. But again, does it affect our walk with Jesus? Because we might you know, dig in the minutia and find some little interesting nugget, but if it doesn't change anything, it's an exercise in futility. So let's see. Here's what I would suggest. To see, to, to see what Song of Solomon 5 verse 2, what light it sheds on Revelation 3.20, let's just review a few verses right before Song of Solomon 5.2 so we know the context, and I think things will just kind of be... They'll just open up. So let's do that. I'm going to summarize it here. If you were to go through all of chapter 4, which we're not going to do, but if you were to go through Song of Solomon chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, essentially, Jesus is praising his bride's beauty. Okay? Um, among other things, in verse 7, he says, You are all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. That's what he wants. If you read Ephesians 5, if you read the end of Jude, it talks about there being no spot in us. That's how God wants to have us presented before him. Verse 9, it says, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Okay? Now, he also goes on. He, we're not going to worry about the, all the symbolism here, but he, he, shall we just say, represents her as all trees. The Bible talks about God's people as trees. We'll just leave it at that. But it refers to all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices. Refers to her as a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters. These are all good things in the Bible. Okay? But his bride is still lacking one thing. I wonder what the one thing is she's lacking. Now, again, we're not going into all the details here. We're just trying to see that he's clearly saying, you're fair, there's no spot in you, like you've been swept and garnished, right? But you're lacking something that needs to go in its place. You've ravished my heart. The trees are beautiful. You've got well of living waters. I mean, everything is in place. They're so, you're so perfect. But one thing lacketh thou. What is that one thing? 
Well, we go to verse 16 and we find out this. Jesus says, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. South wind. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. You might look at that and say, okay, wait a minute. This is supposed to help clarify things? This looks like this is more confusion. No. This need for wind, this is the thing that she lacks. Of course, the new question is, okay, so why does she need any wind? But we're almost there. Why do you think God would say, my people, my bride, they need some wind? You think, Holy Spirit, okay. I think you're on the right track, but let's just show it from Scripture here. I tried to pick what is probably the plainest, at least to my mind it is. If you have something else that's plainer, great. we got more texts. But here's the one that I chose. How many of you here, somewhere in the, the recesses of your mind, remember something about some dry bones in the Bible? Valley of dry bones? Okay. This, to my mind, is the clearest. Ezekiel 37 The prophet says, The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord. He set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. Now, it's showing the condition of God's people. It's saying they're like a bunch of dead bones. Okay? You go on a few verses later, God has a message for his prophet. He says, I want you to do something. I want you to prophesy to these bones. Give them a message. Okay? He gives them a message. And here it is. Verses 7 and 8, Ezekiel says, I prophesied. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, that is, the bones, and the skin covered them above, but there was what? Ah, it's like when God made Adam and Eve, or sorry, when God made Adam. He formed him of the dust of the ground, right? And he was perfect, except he was dead. He needed to have the breath of life in him. Same thing here. God says, spiritually, my people are dead. They're a bunch of bones. So first of all, we need to get a body, right? You can't, can you fill a vessel of bones? Going to be a bunch of air there, right? I mean, you just, it's not solid. We got to put a body on it. But uh, to use another metaphor, you got to have a glass to drink water, right? If you got nothing in the glass, it's not going to do you a bit of good, is it? Right? You got to have water. If you have water and no glass, you can't drink it. And if you got a glass and no water, there's nothing to drink. You need both. So in Ezekiel 37, 9 and 10, God tells his prophet, now you can do something else. Prophesy unto the what? Wind. Same word as in Song of Solomon. Prophesy, son of man, breathe upon me slain that they may what? I apologize, that wasn't the best color there, but yes, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And not only did they live, but guess what? God had a job for them. It says, they stood up upon their feet, And what does it say? They were a what? Oh, now that's extremely interesting language because we're going to see that in just a couple of slides here in Song of Solomon. Aha. So the point is, God uses wind to be that which he puts in you so you can live. So Jesus' bride needs the wind to blow on her because she lacks the Holy Spirit. Right? Holy Spirit was breathed into Adam and he became a living being. We need the Holy Spirit spiritually so that we can be alive and not just walking dead in our sins. She isn't revealing Christ. She had a bunch of beautiful things, right? She's like, she's a beautiful garden of fruit trees and everything else. But if she's not producing the fruit, it doesn't matter how good the leaves are and how long the limbs are and how well pruned and everything else. If there's nothing coming out of the tree, you might as well cut it down, right? 
She isn't revealing Christ. So Jesus comes knocking right after he um, says, you know, I want to blow on you so that he can fill his bride. That's the point. Now, I debated what to put in here because I don't want to put too much, so I'm not going to. You may need to review, but in the last time we looked at things, we got to the point of the seventh church. The seventh church, October 22, 1844, the time of the judgment. That's the seventh church, Laodicea. We got to the great disappointment and all that. But it's in that same church, he says, you know, there's a problem here. There's a need of the Holy Spirit. And we can actually pinpoint historically what we're talking about here. Now, some of you this may be new, some of you it's not. But it turns out that 44 years later, 25 years after the founding of the church in 1863, there are this special set of meetings. A couple of gentlemen by the name of Jones and Wagner, God used them to present a message to the church that was just, it was, um, it was of the framing of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're told. And their message was so vital, but it corresponds to this. Here's a few statements, just so we can see the, what was significant about it. The uh, Spirit of Inspiration says, Now our meeting is drawing to a close, and not one confession has been made. There has not been a single break so as to let... Does it say to let Jesus in? It says to let what? The Spirit of God in, which is how you let Jesus in. Now I was saying, what was the use of our assembling here together and for our ministering brethren to come in if they are here only to shut out the Spirit of God from the people? We did hope that there would be a turning of the, to the Lord here. Perhaps you feel that you have all you want. I never was more alarmed than at the present time. Uh, the key is that there is a point in our history where there was this contention about the Holy Spirit, and there was a season where things weren't looking so promising. Now, notice the words that are used here, again, describing the same time frame here. There was, I knew, a remarkable blindness, Laodicean message, right, upon the minds of many, that they did not discern, spiritual eyes have, where the Spirit of God was and what constituted true Christian experience. The light of heaven could not penetrate the dense fog of lukewarmness and sinfulness. I mean, you can see Revelation 3 here, right? I mean, this, is, this should be plain. Now, is the Holy Spirit that big of a deal? Well, it is. Now, notice the strong language that we're told about this, and we're not trying to blame anybody. That's not my point. I'm just trying to show the, how important the need of the Holy Spirit is. If you look in this book, Testimonies to Ministers, there's a section that deals in the early part of the book that deals with, you know, the goings-on of 1888. It says here that men should keep alive the spirit which ran riot at Minneapolis, essentially, you know, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. That was an offense to God. Again, I stated that the course that had been pursued at Minneapolis was cruelty to the Spirit of God. Did you know you can be cruel to His Spirit? He's easily wounded. Wow. I know that, that, that at that time, the Spirit of God was insulted. Did you know you can insult the Spirit of God? You can, right? The Spirit of God is not a force. The Spirit of God is a person. It's a bit mysterious, but he's a person. You can insult him, you can offend him, and you can, what was the other one we saw? Oh, yes, you can be cruel to him. And there's one more. The scenes which took place at this meeting, Minneapolis, 1888, made the God of heaven ashamed to call those who took part in them his brethren. Now, that's particularly interesting language because in the book of Hebrews, as I read it, it says, for this cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. 
unless we refuse that link with divinity of the Holy Spirit. He says, if you're going to treat me like that, we can have no part with each other. This is incredibly strong. The point is, the Holy Spirit is vital in our experience. Okay. Now, notice this. In volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 450, it says this. If the heart of God's people were filled with love for Christ, if every church member were thoroughly imbued with the spirit of self-sacrifice, if all manifested thorough earnestness, had the purpose of God been carried out by His people in giving to the world the message of mercy... I said earlier, they, they, the problem with the church is they weren't revealing Christ. Christ would, ere this, have come to the earth and the saints would have received their welcome into the city of God. Wow. In a sense, I'm glad that it didn't happen because at least it gave me a chance to be there. I wouldn't have existed. But God knew this would happen. It's not like he actually was going to come. He knew that it wouldn't work out that way. But he said, if you hadn't put that impediment in the way, if you hadn't listened to Satan as he tried to bar up the way, hedge up the way, yes, I could have come. Some hundred, whatever that'd be, 130-ish years ago, right? Well, guess what? God never changes. So if now God can carry out the purpose, his purpose in us by giving to the world the message of mercy, guess what? It sounds like he could come Pretty fast, which wouldn't be a bad idea because the last I've checked the news, which is all a bunch of lies anyway, but when you check it, it's pretty dark, right? I'm not too impressed with the things I'm seeing. I just hang my head thinking, what next? What can I, I can't do anything, right? I mean, help out here and there a little bit, but it's, I mean, we're dealing with corruption that is so beyond the pale here. We need to get out of here and go home. Now, oh, here are the pages. I told you volume 11 of manuscript releases I knew I had it here. It's pages 281 to 298. It's 18 pages. If you want to read it, it's good material. It's interesting. It says, an appeal for acceptance of the message of Christ's righteousness. But here's the good thing. It's not all gloom and doom. No, no, no. This is where now we flip and say, okay, we see our need. Now here's the good news. On 286 of that reference there, it says, those who live just prior to the second appearing of Christ may expect a what? Large measure of his Holy Spirit. He's been longing to pour it out, right? It's all pent up. He's like ready just to boom. And for me personally, I need it. You know, I, I, I have lost my patience. Uh, I get discouraged. Um, I don't know, arrogant. I don't know, you can probably help me out here, but please don't. But I mean, you know, he says, I'm going to, a large measure. I could use a double portion, you know? kind of lacking. Page 289. Now there are, oops, I left that letter there, sorry. There are many who need to see that the Laodicean message applies to them who do not see it. See, that's the problem with blindness. God says there's a problem, but if the problem is blindness, you don't know. Uh, I'm reminded that, see, I wear these things, but when I was in the, what, the, the 10th grade, my mother suspected that I needed glasses because I'd, I'd done poorly on some quiz in chemistry. And she thought, I bet he can't see the board. So she took me in. I thought, ah, pfft, you know, right. Well, it wasn't too bad. It was like 2040 or something. I'd like to say it's still that. It's not. But anyways, it uh, turns out, yeah, I had an eye problem. Well, of course, you know, teenagers, we think, well, we got it figured out. You know, what does the doctor know? I mean, just an expert in glasses. I mean, he doesn't know anything. And so a couple years later, it's like, okay, hmm. 
Now I can't see unless I go like this, you know. So you're trying to figure out how in class just to kind of, you know, do these kind of things so that hopefully nobody will see. Well, yeah, you don't see it until finally you just break down and say, okay, yeah, I got a problem. I can't see squat. So now, notice this. If the church refuses to hear the voice of the heavenly merchantman, the one selling the ISAV, the white raiment, and the gold, refuses to open the door, then Christ will, what does it say? Hmm, that's Song of Solomon language. We're going to see it in just a second here. And it will be left destitute of his presence, destitute of true riches, but saying in self-righteousness, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He'll leave you to your own deception. You know, it's like in, it says in the book of Hosea, Ephraim is joined to his idols. Let him what? Alone. God will leave us to our miserable deception. Song of Solomon 5.2 is where he's knocking at the door. The bride, she tarries, but finally she gets up. She seems interested. She opens the door. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. Hmm. It's exactly what we're told here. Now she gets to searching. But now, again, there's encouragement here. But the counsel of the true witness, Laodicean language, does not represent those who are lukewarm as in a hopeless case. See, they're in a very bad way, but it's not hopeless. If it was hopeless, you'd say, well, just pull the trigger, right? No. It says, there is yet a chance to remedy their state. And the Laodicean message, have you ever read it as full of encouragement? God doesn't say one good thing to them, right? But it's full of encouragement. There's nothing good in them, but he says, I've got a gift for you that's out of this world. For the backslidden church may yet buy the gold of faith and love, may yet have the white robe of the righteousness of Christ, that the shame of their nakedness need not appear. Purity of heart, purity of motive may yet characterize those who are half-hearted and who are striving to serve God and mammon. That's the problem with this. They may yet wash their robes of character and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. Anybody need to wash your robe? Yeah, needs a lot of blood, right? needs to be drenched. It goes on here. Actually, this is a different reference. Excuse me. If you look in um, volume 7 of the Bible commentary, page 966, it says this. I love this. The church must and will shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army of banners. And notice I just happened to highlight in bright yellow there. This is from Song of Solomon 6 verse 10. Mm-hmm. But notice what it's in connection with. God's servants must, by laboring together with Christ, roll away the curse that has made the church so lukewarm. And this is exactly how it appears there. She goes on to quote the Laodicean message. So if you... If we respond to the Laodicean message, Revelation 3, which is the same as Revelation 5, verse 2, and, you know, Christ is withdrawn and everything. But if we respond to it, we're going to get to chapter 6, verse 10, where now there's an army. We saw in Ezekiel 7, the Holy Spirit's breathed in, it stood up an exceeding great army. We will become an army. Wow, this is good news. The chastening reveals a hope of reform, and she quotes two more verses from the Laodicean message. The Laodicean message and Song of Solomon 5 and 6 go together. God has linked them. This is not me with some fanciful interpretation. This is God. 
So if we respond to the Laodicean message, Revelation 3, we need to. If we do, we will receive the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest gift we're told that God can give us. And we will become a victorious army. A victorious army. So we can quickly go from church militant to church triumphant. Yes, this is what we want. Anybody here want that? Okay, good, good, good. Let's make sure we're not the frozen chosen. Okay. Now, notice here. Review and Herald, August 28th, 1894, the obedient approved of God here. The reason I put that up there, you can see the, the yellow words there, practical faith. Let's see, we're making this practical here. Today, the question is to come home to every heart. So individually, do you believe in the Son of God? The question is not, do you admit that Jesus is the Redeemer of the world and that you should repent or repeat to your soul and to others, believe, believe, all you have to do is to believe. No. But the question is this, do you have practical faith in the Son of God? Practical faith results in practical doing so that you bring him into your life and character until you are one with him, one flesh. It's one thing to say, I believe in him. It's another to exercise faith in him, to be one with him. He came down to be one with us. He invites us to come to be, go up to be one with him, divine nature. And I love this, last one. Review and Herald, August 28, 1894, the obedient approved of God, it says this, Many accept of the theory of Christ. Now, wait a minute. That's, that's false education, right? Theoretical. Most of what my training was is that. True education goes from theory to... Uh-oh. Theory to... Pra, pra, pra. Practical. There you go. Okay, good. But they make it manifest by their works that they do not know him as the Savior who died for the sins of men, who bore the penalty of their transgression in order that they might be brought back to their loyalty to God... And through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior might find acceptance with God. Some people would stop it right there and say, I, I just want to be, have him accept me. Yeah, right. As a broken mess? No. Might find acceptance with God in their obedience to his law. And then I love this. How people who see this otherwise, I don't know what they do with a statement like this. Christ died to make it possible, possible for you to do what? What? He died to make it possible for you to cease to sin. Anybody hear sin in the past week? Okay, anybody maybe be so bold as to say, I probably did something wrong this morning. I might have had the impure thought. I might have, I don't know, I forgot to do something on Friday and I snuck and did it real quick this morning. Whatever. He died to make it, all his biddings are enablings, right? He doesn't just say theoretically. He says he died to make it possible for you to cease to sin. I want that. See, I'm real good at the sin part. I'm not so good at the ceasing part. But he says, I died to make it possible for you. And then, yes, sin is the transgression of the law. He died to make it possible to cease from transgressing the law. This is what we need. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So my appeal this morning is this. Will you answer the call of Jesus at the door? You know, your personal door of your heart, right? Okay. You're going to hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, unto you individually, right? Okay. Now, we need to ask ourselves this. Is there any Laodicean deception blocking your full reception of the Holy Spirit? Hmm. There might be, but are you willing with Jesus to say, okay, let's lift and remove this out of the way? Um, are you willing to give your, your Laodicean wretchedness, misery? Who wants to hang on to misery? I can't think of any advantage. Poverty? 
I don't need any of that. Blindness, I don't like that. I don't know why I'd want to hang on to nakedness. There's nothing good hanging on here, right? I mean, this is all garbage. So that you may what? Cease to sin. Who doesn't want to sin? Does anybody here want to stop sinning? I mean, I sure do. I'm not going to go around saying that I have because people are going to say that it's not true. But I sure want to cease to sin. And God promises he will bring us to that point. Okay. And if this is true, so that we can become what? Fair as the moon, clear as the sun. And what does the rest of that verse say? Terrible as an army with banners. Do you want to be part of God's army? Going forth, conquering and to conquer? I do. This is like the, this is the hope of the ages right here. All right. If that, is, if that is your desire, I invite you. Let's go ahead. Let's stand. Let's go ahead and stand as an army, I guess. All right. As we close in prayer, just keep in mind this thought right here. We are told that the character of Christ, appreciating that, is going to be the science and the song of the redeemed all eternity. Anybody want to sing that song? That's why I'm passionate about this book. Let's go ahead. Let's close in prayer here and see if God can't use us today as part of his army. Father in heaven, I thank you. I know we are dealing with a complex book, but the gist of it is so plain and it's so exciting, Father. I pray that you will indeed subdue us, get every barricade out of the way, chip away all the the, the buildup on our dirty hearts, Father. I just pray that you would that you would grant us that new heart, a heart of flesh to replace our sinful flesh character that we have, that we would yield to you, be remade in your image, that we wouldn't be just a dead body around some dry bones, but that you would would breathe upon us your Holy Spirit, that we'd be filled with your Holy Spirit, that we could go, we could stand up, we could go forth conquering and to conquer. Father, clear as the moon, fair fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners one that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. We thank you because Jesus is the only one who makes it possible, but he does. We thank you for the prospect that you can make it possible for us to do that which we cannot in our own strength. That is to cease to sin. I pray that we would all have the joy of realizing that. Father, bring us to that point. Let others take note that we have been with Jesus and may they too want to enlist in this terrible army with banners, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.